cord to the computer. So friends, uh, just a couple of ground rules as we get Got started. Um, I just wanted to let you know, like I consider book club sort of an extension of what I like to call sacred conversation, which means that what we do when we have these conversations, especially about a book like this, which really can get pretty intimate, is that um, we have this conversation in a uh, with a disposition of respect for each other's dignity. Okay, which means that we recognize that we may not always agree on everything we have to say. We may have thoughts about what's happening in somebody else's life, especially maybe in a book club like this one that's designed to cause us to reflect on what God is doing in our lives. But we also recognize that our thoughts and our opinions are not always necessarily what the other person needs to hear at this moment or maybe ever. Okay, and so. Uh, that doesn't mean, though, I, that I am shutting down conversation because the other side of this is I am facilitating a discussion here, but I am by no means determining where this discussion goes. OK, so I really do approach will approach this every week with my own thoughts about things that I'm interested in talking about. But I want to talk about the things that you are also interested in talking about. So consider me really an equal participant in this, not even necessarily a leader. I'm just going to provide some structure around it. Does that sound okay? Okay. Uh, and then really the, the root of this is what I want for my church and thus this, this discussion is for this to be a safe place for people to genuinely be themselves it doesn't do any good for us to read a book about the gift of being ourselves if then we do not feel safe to actually be ourselves with each other all right so um so basically what i'm gonna do every week really is just i'll probably start off with um kind of a question to get you all going and then we'll see where the conversation goes and I can go to another question or I can say, okay, you know, is there anything in this section of the book that you all found interesting that you wanted to talk about? So I want to encourage you, basically, we're just going to cover the preface today. Next week, we're just going to do chapter one. And each week, we're going to just handle a chapter. Okay, so the conversation can be as short or as long as we want. Basically, after an hour, I will give you all the opportunity to sign off. Okay, that way, you know, no one has to worry about this book club going three, four hours into the night. Okay. Um, and then, um, yeah, and, and so that, that's how it'll go week to week. Does anybody have any questions before we kind of dive into it? Okay, uh, so why don't we do this? Uh, I, if it's okay with you all, I'd actually like to start by praying. Um, I have this great little prayer book that I like to use. And there's a prayer in here that I've just fallen in love with. And I like, I use it almost all, uh, almost every week at the start of some meeting I have. So God, we are gathered here uniquely in all of history. We particular people in this singular time and place. And so accomplish your purposes among us, God. Tune our hearts to the voice of the spirit. Wake us to be present to you and to one another in these shared hours that we're given. For it is you, O Lord, who have so gathered us from these various places, and you alone who know our hearts and our needs. And so, God, among us are some who arrive anxious, and some who are lonely, and some are suffer pain or sorrow, 
may we in our joys find grace to enter into the sorrows of others. And among us are some who arrive rejoicing, hearts made light by good news and good health and glad anticipation. May we in our sorrows find grace to embrace the joys of others. So let's prize this moment, let us prize these moments and care for one another deeply. For each of us and our relationships to one another are precious and fleeting. Amen. Amen. Thank you all. Um, so here's where I think I want to start. David Benner is a psychologist uh, who, and like basically like a life coach. And I think it's really interesting the way he will throughout this book combine both both the, the sort of the classical discipline of theology and also the classical discipline of psychology. And he weaves them together really in kind of a seamless fashion so that we see that in some sense, they're not having two different conversations, that the conversation about what it means to be human, what it means to have human desires and needs like to be loved, that that these are inherently related to the way we talk about and the way we relate to God. And this is, I think, why it really struck me as a person who loves theology and has dabbled in psychology. Uh, it really struck me how well he does this, because as a person who knows theology, like I'm reading this and he's reading all the right people. And I imagine as a PhD in psychology, he's reading and familiar with all the right people on the other side too, to really write a book that I think is challenging. So he makes a statement uh, in the preface on page 15, which is not numbered. He says, while concepts such as self-discovery, identity, and authenticity are easily dismissed as psychobabble, each has an important role to play in the transformation journey of Christian spirituality. Even in the Matthew passage just referenced, Jesus talks as much about self-discovery as self-sacrifice. What is he getting at there? And has that been your experience in the way the church has talked about self-discovery versus self-sacrifice? What has been your experience with the way the church has talked about those themes? It absolutely has not been my experience with churches. Okay. Um, my experience is churches is uh, you need to find ways to give more of yourself that you are, you know, lacking, uh, you have more that you can do. You have more gifts that you're able to, to bring, um, you know, a lot of focus on, um, what you can bring to the table to fit in with where, um, you know, the, the church is trying to go rather than how you can be holy yourself and what that brings to that community. Yeah. Yeah. Dude, thanks for just like laying it out there right at the beginning. Has anybody else had experience uh, similar to Ben's? Yeah, yeah I, I would say I have. Um and I think he goes on in the preface, too, to talk about the concept of becoming more like Christ. You, you're, you're essentially losing yourself. Um, and for me, too, I think it's just tied up not only just in the church, but just how I was raised. I mean, you know, I'm 52. And this idea of self-discovery, focus on self, you know, that was just considered to be, you know, 
psychobabble, like he says, you know, it's selfish. You just need to get on with your life and your work and, you know, yeah, it's such a crybaby about everything, you know, that, that kind of thinking too. Yeah. yeah. And, and those are two, those are two different kinds of claims, right? Like to say it's psychobabble is an intellectual claim, right? It's a claim to say intellectually, it's just irrelevant to the way we talk about God. To say it is selfish and to say you're being selfish by doing it is a moral claim. And when you combine an intellectual claim and a moral claim, both negatively, and then throw it on a congregation or an individual person, what you get is shame. So that you are not allowed to ask intellectual or moral or personal questions about yourself, lest you be a shameful person. Yeah. Thank you, Tim. How about uh, how about some ladies? Does, do any of our ladies have any thoughts on this? I think it, <clears throat> I've always been taught, and I guess practiced that at church in particular, it isn't about. It's not all about you. It's not all about I me. Mean, it's not all about me. It would be wrong for it to be about me. Yeah. Yeah. But at the same time, Tom, I keep thinking about what you said, and I've read this recently. In order to love others, you must love yourself first. Mm -hmm. And that's that's not being selfish. You, you've got to appreciate yourself, what you can do, what you can do for others. That way you're going to be able to open up to others. You've got to be somewhat pleased with yourself. If you're yeah. not, then that's when you get in a lot, lot of trouble. Yeah. Yeah. And that's it, right? Like we're taught to give of ourselves without actually loving ourselves. I'm sorry. I think I interrupted somebody. Go ahead, whoever. Was no, that, that's okay. I was just going to say, I, I think I grew up with this narrative of self-sacrifice, self-denial, take up your cross. Mm -hmm. And that didn't leave a lot of room for loving yourself, knowing yourself, discovering yourself, your unique traits. Because like you said, that was all kind of irrelevant. If you the, the way to be holy, I was taught was to sacrifice yourself. And, and like the more you're suffering, the better. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly, exactly. And, and one thing I would, I would uh, if you all feel free to reflect on this, the reason I wanted to ask women in particular about this is because I think this message, this message is given both to men and women but this message is given to women in unique ways by the church. Can you, can, would anybody be willing to reflect on that or just inform us of your experience with that? Okay. I'll dive in. Thank you, Emily Raccielli. Yeah. <laughs> so I think, you know, from my perspective, one of the things that I have struggled with in, in that sense is that, you know, to be um, a good Christian wife, you're there to support your husband. So there's sacrifice right there. Um, and, you know, there was never when, when I was growing up and, and as an adult, you know, the understanding of, you know, loving myself, putting myself is that, you know, like you talked about putting the oxygen mask on first, you know, that was never taught. Um, and, and I, I think also for me, 
in what you were just, you know, what everybody was talking about with Horror of the Women was that, um, you know, to love myself first was selfish because my children, my husband, you know, the, the church, all of that came before me. But what I'm understanding now is that by doing that, I didn't know who I was, didn't acknowledge and didn't understand that God created me as I am. So therefore, you know, if I know myself and love myself through the eyes of God, then I'm going to be the best that I was created to be. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what I need to embrace as opposed to the setting aside and you know, the sacrifice piece. There is sacrifice in that, but that's not the main focus. Yeah. Yeah. There, there's a uniquely gendered component to the way self-sacrifice is historically discussed in the church. And you, you see this because women's roles of help are often designed and spoken of around male roles, right? The wife of, the mother of, instead of Emily, instead of Anna, instead of Carol, you know? Um, and, and Daly, you said something in the chat that I think is, is really helpful about how, um, it's often like you're told to be a good helpmate, right? Which is so, it's so interesting to me that that language is still used even in modern Bible translations, um, because the, the Hebrew is helper. Um, but the, the word for helper is used of like warriors and stuff in the rest of the old Testament. Like it's not a gendered role um and so but but because we have framed self-sacrifice primarily as gendered in the church um uh yeah that's our only categories for talking about helping right um is gendered helping uh anybody else have thoughts on on this before we kind of keep on moving oh i just want to share a little bit um deeper thought i guess or go deeper bro the shame the shame is a big part of it because even when we say like your tagline holy love for god holy love for neighbor and holy love for self i still have a hard time with that because i think growing up in more of evangelical sense that was never i mean we've we've touched on it here that was never talked about like love for self um because it was considered like this i think what he's saying psychobabble or you know you don't want to get into much counseling you know that's not good um but just that idea of love for yourself i still cringe when i hear that like i'm having a hard time like accepting that phrase because i think it is the moral and theological uh statement and you're you're diving into that and then you can um my son just walked in the the room so yeah go i I don't know um i just lost my train of thought because i have a hard time keeping my train trains of thought going yeah but so i mean but i think the point you're making is that like for the, through various different means, we are taught explicitly and implicitly that any sort of self-love, any sort of focus on self is problematic. 
Yeah. Right. And we're taught it in these varying different ways, like whether that's through moral tales or through that's like the subtle use of words like helpmate or whether it's 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 even theological. Right. Like uh, the the doctrine of original sin. Right. That that we are born into sin and inherently selfish people. And therefore, the goal is to completely give of the self. That's what righteousness means. But I think one of the things that David Benner says here that is really helpful is he says, OK, like if our goal is to encounter God, there's no other self through which I can encounter God than the self that God has made. And so if, if God loves this self, like who am I to hate this self? And that's a, that's a paradigm shift. Go ahead, David. I was just thinking about Jesus saying that we should love our neighbors ourselves. Um, and some people misunderstand the point of that. Um, we are assumed that we value ourselves. Mm -hmm. Do we value other people and their opinion as much as we do ourselves or our own opinion? Are we willing to listen to their opinion? Are we willing to value their input, even when it's different than ours? If I mean, when we talk about how odd it seems to talk about loving ourselves, it's inherent in the very nature of Christianity that Jesus assumes that we value ourselves. Mm. The question is, can we value other people as much as we value our own input? Mm. Mm. It's so interesting then that like Jesus's words, which assume we love ourselves and assume it's a challenge to love others, that, the, that those words have almost been used in a way to turn it on its head to where you're only exclusively allowed to love neighbor and it's questionable whether you should love yourself. It's such a weird sort of interpretive twist such that even the first time anyone ever pointed that out to me, uh, David, my friend Dallas Pfeiffer uh, pointed me out this out to me and he was like you know tom like and he would he would constantly say to me like tom you are accepted like your anger is okay like you're justified in what you're feeling and i was like what the heck what is this dude talking about like this again like this cycle babble stuff right because of these like voices of shame and he would say like look man the 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 call to love your neighbor as yourself assumes that you love yourself and i remember thinking like i don't know if that would pass like my hermeneutics 101 class in seminary like that's just that's just you know bullcrap and but the more i've sat with it and th this this is this is really i think what drew me to this book right is that it's taken me years to get to the place where i'm like you know what like i am a self-worth knowing created by God. And that's good. And that's okay. It's more than okay. I have no other way of knowing God than through this self. Um, yeah. So, uh, so anybody else in the, the first couple of pages have anything that, you know, just sort of stood out to you that you're like, I want to highlight this. I want to talk about this with most of with other people. Uh, hey, this is uh, Justin here. Um, I, Justin. I, do, I have a question about the part we just talked about before we move on. Yeah. Um, um, this is a problem that's uh, unique to me and anyone else listening to the audible.com uh, production. Um, audiobooks don't list uh, footnotes or endnotes. 
what I'm wondering is like maybe I'm maybe uh, my reading of the Bible has been that much influenced by the church, but even if I self study mm-hmm. in the Gospels, I don't see talk of uh, self. How, how is it worded? Self discovery. Mm-hmm. Um, what I'm wondering, like I, I want that to be true. I want it to to be that you know Jesus really did emphasize. You know, really did make a point of self discovery. I don't mm-hmm. see it in my reading, so I'm wondering: Does the author have any uh, any uh, references uh, for that claim? Because I want it. I want it to be valid so much. So uh, the specific claim that the specific thing that I was citing, he does uh, talk about just the nature of being in Christ from Second Corinthians five fifteen five seventeen. Um, he he doesn't necessarily cite that. He, he doesn't cite that text as a whole. Um, I would say that part of the issue is is partly what David was bringing up a second ago, which is that I think these texts assume that humans inherently have a self-love and that that self-love uh, both has good qualities and also like, you know, uh, uh, warped qualities, a shadow side to it. And so I think one of the reasons you don't see it a lot explicitly spelled out in the text is because it's assumed that we do love ourselves. One of the things that I'm thinking about with that is like we, we see these examples of Jesus going out into the wilderness and seeking solitude and seeking communion with God. Mm. And I feel like that, that kind of is the example to us like that's that's where he's wrestling with temptation and and solidifying purpose and um communion with god right and i i think that's a big part of our self-discovery as as christians is finding our identity in god and, and taking that time to like individually not just communally but individually really commune with god um and I was, I was just thinking about the idea of sabbath as well just not the running ourselves ragged, doing as many church services in one day as we can, but the the really finding ways to uniquely and individually pour out love for God and, and receive love from God as individuals and as unique mm. people. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, yeah, I think that's a really great example. I think Sabbath, particularly the more robust notion of Sabbath that you have in the Hebrew Bible Old Testament, is both a, uh, it, well, it's really all three. It's a act of holy love for God and an act of holy love for neighbor to, for example, like um, not demand of your employees or your slaves or your family members to have to work. Um, but also it is a day of rest where you sit back and enjoy God's creation and reflect on like your role and your position in God's creation. Um any other thoughts, David? It looked like you were about to say something. Well, I would only lift up First John chapter four, where it talked. And I, Justin, I would love you to read that First John chapter four. That talks about uh, God loved us. We love God, and perfect love, our love for God and love for neighbor, casts out fear, uh, because fear has to do with punishment. And then God, God has dealt with that. We don't have to deal with that in that sense. And we can love others unconditionally. And I, I just, I thought First John chapter four might be a help for Justin. 
I was thinking about the fact where we talked about self-love and needing that Sabbath. We very much live in a society that tells us there's a whole lot of stuff wrong with us because we need the right laundry detergent, the right shoes, you know, the right deodorant, all those things that, you know, they point out that we need to improve ourselves. And then also, you know, in our sports world, we see these folks that are just amazing and they, you know, they're judged by, well, they made one little bobble here. So we're going to take off a point and they turned their head wrong here and they took off a point. So I think societally, we live in a society that points out what's wrong with us or what society thinks is wrong with us. So if we have that Sabbath that Tiffany talks about to go back to that God that loves us and reassures us and lets us allow to have those positive feelings about ourselves. Hmm. I, I think, yeah. oh, go ahead, Ben. Well, just part of, um, you know, in, in the preface, what stood out to me is a big part of just trying to figure out who we are um, is, a, is a big step for us to take, because a lot of times we don't know. I know that's something I struggle with, because there's a lot of places I can fit in, a lot of different things that I can do, um, and, you know, trying to figure out, like, who it is that God created us to be individually, and who he wants us to be, um, you know, is kind of a big first step, because a lot of times we're basing that on what other people are saying, you know, their opinions of us, things that they like about us and encourage us, things that they don't like about us, you know, our own fears and anxieties that drive, um, you know, the goals that we work towards and things like that, um, you know, and, and so I think trying to figure out who God created us to be is a big first step to then look at, okay, how do we love ourselves, you know, who we truly are, you know, because you have the idea of Sabbath is a day of you know, rest for us, but then also when the apostles were rubbing grain in their hands to eat, like Jesus didn't have a problem because they were taking care of themselves. You know, Paul tells Timothy, um, you know, drink some wine, you know, for your stomach because you're giving yourself problems. Like it's, you know, there's just examples throughout the Bible of taking care of ourselves and how that's important. Um, But a lot of times that's looked over in favor of, okay, well, self-sacrifice, you know, this is what love is. Jesus died for us, so we need to die for everyone else, and that doesn't necessarily fulfill who God created us to be, because he created us to do more than die. I think for me, like, even before, yeah, because I think a lot of what is being said here is, like, these texts assume some level of self-love, that we're going to take care of ourselves and meet our own needs, right? I think for me, like, the shift for me was the recognition because I didn't love me. I struggled to believe that I was not lovable, including by God. So when I was able to accept that God loved me, logically, I said that makes, <laughs> that makes me lovable. I should therefore treat myself as lovable, which is to say, I should therefore love myself. So the, I think the logic is there um, because holy love for God, holy love for neighbor and holy love for self are all wrapped up together. I don't know that at least as far as Christianity is concerned, I don't think you can separate any of them from each other because they are logically 
and emotionally and theologically and uh, psychologically all intertwined together. Uh, I, I do think there's also, and just to like bring this out to a more abstract level, um, I also think there is a there is a sense in which like we are living in a psychological era, right? Like we're we're like post Freud. So the way the language we're going to use about self-love, the nature of the self, the ego and the id and the superego, like all of this language comes out of psychology. It, that's not to say none of those ideas were in operation during the biblical times, but they would have not voiced any of it that way. And it would, some of it would have been assumed. So what we're doing is looking at texts like Ben was saying about like, look, like take care of yourself. Like you're a self worth taking care of. This assumes certain things about how you should view yourself. Um, anybody else from the first, uh, from the preface? I thought his uh, point about, you know, a tulip knows exactly what they're supposed to be mm. was was kind of interesting because, you know, a tulip can't be a bad tulip. A tulip can't yeah. go wrong. Yeah. <laughs> but boy, I can. Yeah. yeah. And I sometimes struggle. What what are the, the traits in me that are God-given that should be used and and applauded and what are the traits in me that are just should not be there and I struggle with yeah you know I think I think about Peter you know he was so impulsive and brash yet God used that and uh, I, I kind of wonder since I'm sure no tulip this process of sort of figuring out what your real self is and what these these other shameful parts are is uh, a lifelong journey and that's the that's the language he he introduces later with his quote from Merton, right? That there's there's the true self, the self that is known by God and loved by God, and therefore it can know and love itself, and the false self, which is all the roles that we place over ourselves to make us perform lovableness, right? Like to perform for other people to, as Carol was saying, like buy the right things or work the right job so that we can prove to ourselves or other people that we're worth loving. And I love it, you know, even though it's not inherently biblical language, like I love this idea of the true self and the false self, um, just as categories to work with. Yeah. The, sent uh, the sentence on page 17, where he talks about where sometimes you may find yourself feeling like a fraud, the sense of being not what they pretend to be, but rather precisely what they pretend not to be. That was mm. scary. That's a scary sentence to me. Mm. Uh, I'm trying to locate that on the page. It's the top of page oh, 17. Yeah. So we are most conscious of this search for identity during adolescence when it takes front stage. At this stage of life, we try on identities like clothing, looking for a style of being that fits with how we want to be seen. But even after uh, long after adolescence has passed, most adults know the occasional feeling of being a fraud, a sense of not being what they pretend to be, rather precisely what they intend not to be. Man, it's just such so, so just it's, the writing is so easy to understand, but it's packed. Right. I had to read that a few times before I grasped what he was saying. 
Yeah. Yeah. What struck you about that, Betsy? It was just kind of scary. Mm. Because I've never ever thought I've never thought about getting to know myself ever. Mm. I've just always assumed I know me. Yeah. But perhaps this study is going to allow me to find a real me that I need to explore more. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, also um, the way you see yourself depends upon the role that you're in. And sometimes you know who you truly are, but you're in a situation where you are expected to perform in a certain way. Um, I remember, you know, when I was teaching or I was a principal or I was responsible for other people, there were times when I would put aside who I felt like I really was in that situation because I had to perform or do what people expected from that particular role that I was in at that particular time. And Mm -hmm. I, I think that is a challenge Uh, as a parent, as uh, a a mother, as uh, any of the roles that we assume, whether they're at work or they're at home, uh, I change the way we behave based on those expectations. Yeah. And what's really interesting about it is those expectations, whether, whether they come from the outside or they're sort of adopted on the inside, the power of the expectation is when it's not stated, right? So it's the the power of the expectation is when it is so ground in our culture or ground in our brains and our hearts that it doesn't even have to be stated for it to be expected. And this, this goes so deep when you start thinking about things like gender roles, when you start thinking about things like sexual identity that I know, I know that I know some, some LGBT folks, for example, who are like, you know what? Like I knew from the time I was five years old that I was different. Right. I've known some LGBT folks who are like 29, 30 years old. And they're like, finally allow themselves to say, Oh my gosh, like I'm queer. And that's, where does that come from? Well, it comes from like an entire culture that has expectations around what masculinity and femininity are such that we don't even question them or allow ourselves to question them or, or we don't, we don't even think to ask, am I living into a role? That's what makes it scary and powerful is when I don't even have to ask, am I living into a role? I just do it. And I think that's part of what I really appreciated about this book is it's like, Here's the roles we're living into. Here's how this works. Like, let's put our finger on it. Let's name it. Because in naming it, we sort of have the power then to resist it. You have to name it first. Mm-hmm. Um, so he says, paradoxically, this is the bottom of page 17, uh, the last full paragraph, the last sentence, paradoxically, as we become more and more like Christ, 
we become more uniquely our own true selves. Unpack that for me, somebody. Maybe JD, you just put something in the chat. Tie what you said. It uh, say what you said in the chat out loud, but tie it tie it to this idea of becoming uniquely ourselves. Um. So I said that I'm starting to think that we don't really change as people as we get older. That we just learn more. You know, like we've been saying, we learn more about who we really are. And we sometimes we get the ability to uh, place ourselves in places where uh, we have differing levels of permission mm. to be ourselves. So, like, I grew up in southeast Missouri, and I don't know if any of y'all have ever been in southeast Missouri, but growing beards is not okay. You do not grow a beard unless you want to be rabble. Like it's, it's not a thing. Um, and I don't care. So, but I don't live in Southeast Missouri anymore. I live six hours from my mom mm -hmm. and uh, being away. And, you know, not, not that I don't care about my mom, but, yes. but we don't have time to go into that but <laughs> not tell us not, jd unpack your are, freudian nightmares for us we only have 10 minutes left um <laughs> not not being close to her anymore has allowed mm. me to be um to think the things that i've always thought but i can think mm. them out loud now yeah yeah and i can believe the things that i that i have always remembered believing but now i can apply them to my life yeah um my dad's not around anymore so those expectations are gone you know yeah and i get to apply what he's taught me and what it means to be a christian male the way that i see it to my boys and to be a, a, a woman, a, you know, a young woman to my daughter without the expectations of not only my family, but the people that I grew up under. Hmm. Because not because I've changed, but because I now have permission to be who I always have been. Hmm. Hmm. It's almost like... Um... Yeah, uh, I, had a, I, had a, I had a metaphor in my mind. I lost it. I, I like this idea of like what is really happening here is we're becoming increasingly our true selves, and we're 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 given permission through God's love for us, for other people's love for us, and our own love for ourselves to become who we were made to be, which is reflectors of the image of Christ. Um. And that's why that's why I sort of liked that statement about, you know, like paradoxically, the more we become like Christ, the more we become really who we really are. Um, and so, yeah. Sorry, go ahead, JD. Oh, I was going to say, I, I disagree with that. 
I'll take the other side of the paradox. Okay. I think the more the more that I've learned about myself, the more I feel like I'm becoming more like who Christ wants me to be, or who more like Christ, I guess. Um, because you know, in in rural America, who is Christ? Well, he's he died for your sins, but you know, if he had a gun, maybe he wouldn't have had to have died for your, for your sins, you know, <laughs> that kind of stuff. But, um, <laughs> you know, lear- learning more about myself has, has taught me, like, why Jesus did what he did. Mm. You know, why he placed himself in those places. Mm. Um, why he didn't leave the garden. Mm. I think what I was going to say, I, I understand the sentiment behind it, but and it, 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 I read, I accidentally, I did read the first chapter, but it's this idea of like, we can't know ourselves if we don't know God or, if, or if we become more like ourselves, we can become more like Christ, but then it, it kind of starts to feel exclusive to me. Hmm. Like, what about the people who don't know God, who like our atheist friends or people hmm. who's whose perspective of God is completely different. Mm. Do they not know themselves then? Cause I don't, I don't think I can say that. So mm. sometimes like a, that statement feels a little um, like we have a monopoly on it because we have Christ kind of attitude. Sure. Sure. Uh, sure. Yeah. No, I mean, I think that makes sense. And that, that I, I would guess, I mean, I can't speak for him. I would guess that comes down to just audience, right? Like if he were probably writing to what he considered a mixed religious audience, I think he would probably frame that differently. Um, but yes, in insider Christian language can sound very exclusive. I think that's a, that's a good point. Um, I, I was thinking, I a, uh, oh, uh, go ahead. Yeah. Oh, let me interrupt you. Sorry. Uh, I had a thought about the, uh, the paragraph you were quoting where he says, uh, as we become more Christ-like, we become more our, our authentic selves. I was thinking about um, how in Genesis it says that we were made in in the image of God. I think uh, a lot of times in, in you know uh, church culture, as it's presented now, um, this idea of becoming Christ-like is like our uniqueness is kind of stripped away. They wouldn't say that, right? They uh, just a minute. Uh, they would, uh, but like we, we become kind of this uh, uniform, uh, you know, do, a replica of of uh, Jesus, and uh, we think like him, and we talk like him, and act like, uh, uh, like we each were created in God's image. I mean, you know, you know, God in the Old Testament has you know what is it, 120 names, mm-hmm. 120, like aspects of Himself, and like that's just what He's chosen to reveal. And like we can all be, uh, you know, each one of us uniquely created as we were created to be is mm-hmm. still in God's image. Mm-hmm. Uh, billions and billions of people, all different, and all still in God's image. And uh, I think, yeah, we can become we can become Christ-like. Basically, becoming Christ-like like means becoming like ourselves minus uh, sin. You know, uh, basically. It's stripping away all the stuff that we've uh, piled on and that the world has piled onto us, all the, the shame and guilt and uh, uh, character flaws that come from shame and guilt. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's like becoming Christ-like means 
undoing all the damage that uh, life has, has done to us and, and just uh, showing us who we are. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's an excellent way of saying it. And I, I would say like, to say it in the more positive way, it would be like becoming Christ-like is on the negative side, like, right, like not sinning anymore or whatever, but on the positive side, like, how do we not sin? It's, it's actually growth in love, right? That becoming Christ-like is growth in love. Um, I think, I think I, I may be um, not picking up fully what you were putting down, down JD in terms of like self-discovery or whatever, but I wonder um, about if you think the statement uh, paradoxically, as we become more like Christ, we become more uniquely our true self is actually should be coupled with what he says, like basically two sentences later where he says, identity is never simply a creation as if we create ourselves, but rather it is always a discovery. True identity is always a gift of God. This is the top of 18. Would, would that statement alone have been like voiced fine with kind of what you were saying? The identity is never simply a creation. Yeah, it is always um, a discovery. I I don't know. I like I I understand where he's coming from with the, his paradox statement. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the more we come become like Christ, but you know, like Daly said, do non-believers not know themselves? Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I don't know. The Bible would say, no, they don't, you know, fools. I mean, the Bible has all kinds of language about fools and wicked people. And I mean, would we call them that today? I don't know. I, I'm pretty wicked myself, <laughs> myself sometimes, but um, I, I do think though, that the, like this idea of, of love as being, who Christ is, who God is primarily, uh, that, that the things that God does out of love, you know, not, not feelings, but like actual actionable items that, um, where you are putting yourself in, in positions of sacrificing for others, um, you know, does make you more like Christ. And so, um, then by that, do you become more yourself? Do you, you know, do you discover your identity? I mean, I think, I think this I, is partially what Jesus is getting at in some of his parables, right? Like his whole thing about the parable of the good Samaritan, right? Is like the religious mm -hmm. people who think they know and love God and are loved by God make certain decisions that actually um, inhibit their ability to know and reflect the character of God and thus know and reflect, you know, know themselves. But this right. Samaritan who theoretically doesn't know God, who falls outside the like good religious boundaries, like this is a person who expresses holy love for neighbor in a tangible way. And for Jesus, he's telling the people who want to be like him, go be like this guy. Yeah. 
Um, and so I think like to Daly's earlier point, and I think the point you're making, I do think that at I mean, I'm not going to speak for every verse of the Bible, but I, I I feel like the Christian tradition at least has room for, okay, there are these people who don't believe like us, who in their acts of love for others and for themselves, they do come closer to discovering who God made them to be or whatever language we want to kind of put around that. Uh, well, that's the argument that Paul makes at the beginning of Romans, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And he turns um, it around and he says to the religious folks, like, but you think you're better and you don't actually know anything. Right. So, so, so yeah. One thing, so, sorry. No, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was, so I was reading four Maccabees this morning and um, <laughs> you don't, you don't get that statement every day, folks right there. Not, <laughs> not, not in Protestant circles. Um, and he's talking about rationality over passion right and like and he goes on he's going to go on and he's going to talk about the seven martyrs and their mother right i don't know if y'all are familiar with that story from the other maccabee books we are for those of but, you who were, who were listening to my sermon two weeks ago see <laughs> tom knows what's up um but no it if you think about it though like he he makes his case using martyrdom but but he gives all these examples of of like you don't like your neighbor but if your neighbor's trees all burn to the ground you're going to go help him out because he's your neighbor mm -hmm. right you think your brother's a a dirty a-hole but he's your brother so you're going to take care of him if something happens to him right mm -hmm. like use you're using your rational mind he calls it well that i mean that just sounds like paul's argument in or not argument but his little statement in first corinthians 13 right yeah. love does not boast love is you know whatever and yeah. um but then like that got me thinking about this book that my kids therapist recommended to us about um using your whole brain right and the um the beginning of the book talks about your downstairs brain and your upstairs brain the and and i imagine that he's dumbing it down for those of us who have elementary kids but um <laughs> your reptile brain versus like your prefrontal cortex um you know we we need to think with our prefrontal cortex because we're we're humans and that's what we do but sometimes our reptile brain gets the better of us. And as the Psalms say, when you're angry, go be by yourself, calm down, right? Till you can think about it. But then, but then the Psalmist goes on to say, but trust God and know that things are gonna work out, which to me all like is wrapped up in this idea of, of love and yeah. being rational. And so, so if we love people, does that get us to our, our identity? If we love ourselves, is that where he's going? Is that what he means with his paradoxical statement? Yes. You know? and yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I could go on. Yeah. Well, how, how about this? I, I think uh, sort of this is this is a I think a nice sort of transition to how I wanted to end the discussion. 
which is um, last time I was I, I was at my therapist, um, I was asking her, I was like, I don't, you know, like, you know, we were talking about like different trauma or abuse I've experienced as a child or as an adult or whatever. And like, I was just like, I don't know what it means to talk about like Tom as some like true, pure person, right? Like, how, how do I know that I am me and I'm not just like somebody who's reacting to this pain or whatever? And she said, well, that's a really interesting word because there's actually a difference between reaction and response. And I think this has to do with what you're talking about, the different, how yeah. the different parts of the brain work, yeah. right? Like what we're doing when we react is we're not reflecting on ourselves or our neighbors or God at all. We're just reacting and we're assuming the world works a certain way. But when we respond, it's when we get alone, when we sit and we think about it and we, we meditate and we think about, um, you know, these people who hurt me, I can name that for what it is, but more than just name it for what it is. I can also think about why did they do it? Were they themselves also hurt? Right? Like all of these things come into play when you're responding rather than just reacting. And I think that is also a part of being more comfortable in yourself and embracing yourself as a person who's loved. Um, so friends, I'm, I'm happy to hang out here for a couple minutes. Um, but what I want to do every time we meet at 730 is just give a nice break for anybody who does need to go so they don't feel like they need to skip out. So we'll give you all um, a couple minutes just to get out if you need to. And I'll hang around for anybody else who wants to uh, finish up any discussion points. Thanks, Vicki. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Tom. Bye, Chapman's. My face is getting bigger. Lots of people leave. <laughs> Any, so, anybody, yeah, anybody else? Go ahead. I was going to say, sometimes, you know, I react to my kids instead of respond. Mm. And that's... I mean, that's not me, but it's not Christ-like either, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so they call that flipping your lid, I guess. Mm. Is a, I don't know if that's a technical term, but. Mm. I think Merton would call it the false self, right? It's a self that has chosen falseness or unreality as its starting point. Mm. Yeah, giving into it. Yeah, yeah. Does anyone watch Star Trek? Yeah, yeah. Did you did you see the second season of Picard? No, I've seen the first season, not the second season. Okay. Well, I don't. I don't want to give any spoilers, but um, Q's in it in the second season, and he he you know kidnaps Picard because that's what Q does. But his question to Picard in the whole second season is, do you know yourself, right? And so through, you know, 10, 10 episodes of, of Q Mayhem, for those who know Star Trek, um, Picard is like, why, why is all this happening? Why to me? And at the end, Q goes, because you're my favorite.
and I love you. And I don't want you to die like I am, you know, mm. um, alone. He wants Picard to, to find love, um, to find his true self, right? Know yourself, Jean-Luc. Um, sorry. I, no, I'm good. As much as my theology comes from Roddenberry's, it does the Bible. I mean, I think that's a big part of the gospel too, right? Like there's a lot of, you know, Jesus turning things on its head. You know, you have the people that have studied the text the most are giving out these extra rules and Jesus is like, that's not how it's supposed to be. You have people that are trying to follow the rules so strictly that they end up, you know, turning the temple into a you know den of thieves because it's just about going through the motions instead of their heart being in it. And so, you know, there's a lot to the gospel about us being who we are, who we're supposed to be, and, and knowing that, you know, and, and I think, you know, looking at the, you know, old covenant, the first covenant, you know, there's a lot of rules that made people look really weird to the other, you know, nations around them. And then there's a lot more freedom in the New Testament, um, because it was just, you know, right, it was um, the, the, the guardian, the, the escort kind of bringing up what was going to happen, in, you know, presently. There's just a lot of so much freedom, people don't know what to do with it, because, you know, our, our minds are shaped by the theology of, you know, thousands of years of how people have interpreted things and how they've been pushing things and, um, you know, so when it comes to like what gifts people have and who they are, it's like, well, we need people that are able to teach. So you can sit in that role. We need people that can pray and we need people that can cook. And, you know, like gender was brought up earlier. A lot of times that's where it went, well, you're a woman, so you need to pick one of these two things. And, you know, part of, um, you know, my journey going from a church that didn't allow women to teach to where I am now has been the experience of seeing women with those kind of um, capabilities and desires and just gifts for it that weren't allowed to, to do it because the church wasn't allowing it. You and know? I would and say, I think, and I would say a long line of women who loved themselves enough to stand up for the gift of doing that in a church that denied that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and it's that, that's the um, interesting thing I think about a lot of social protest is that it's rooted in self-love, really. Yeah. I don't know that it can be understood as anything other than self-love. Yeah. So self-love has gotten me in trouble at work. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, it will. I mean, it I mean, I think that's what we were talking about at the beginning, right? Like self-love will get you in trouble at church of all places. Oh gosh. Um yeah, don't get me started. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a whole trend called quiet quitting where it's just people not doing work outside of what their actual responsibilities are for what they're getting paid for. Yeah. 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 Or quiet, quiet I I love myself love. enough. I love myself enough that I actually put on a little extra hours than what I actually do. don't tell my boss but I treat myself as salary yeah I don't I, always do salary I, work 
I, I like to think that I have learned to love myself enough to allow my employees to love themselves enough to tell me no. Um, yeah. And coming from and a guy who worked at a mega church, you know, two mega, two, two large churches for um, the first eight years of his ministry, like where, you know, saying no was, you know, I mean, nobody tells you, you can't say no, but it's implied you're going to work 50 hours a week at least. Um, yeah. I mean, a lot of times it's what you're afraid they're going to think of you, even if they don't say you can't do that. Right. It's, well, what do they think of a person? And a lot of times it comes from how they talk about other people when they do that's right. And your and your fear that I am not loved if I become a person they talk about like that, instead of I love myself and I know that I'm loved by God, no matter how they talk about me. And it's so weird, right? Because this is like, I feel like on some level, these are conversations we start having with kids when they're really young. And yet, like, even as adults, like the, the conversation still needs to have, you know, be had, like, not merely in a self-esteem sort of navel gazing way, but like in a genuine, like Christian context, this is a God of self-giving love. It is perfectly acceptable to love ourselves and identify ourselves as selves um, that are distinct. Um and separate from others and separate from God. I, I think really, and Justin, this sort of goes to some of your point, like, I think this is rooted in good Trinitarian theology. Um, I think good Trinitarian theology allows for the boundary between the self and the other so that the self can love itself and love the other both um, and, and receive love in return. But that's a conversation we can have next time. Well, it's, it's not just yeah, the boundary you. between, but it's the interconnectedness of them. To love the other, I must love myself, and loving myself is an act of loving the other. Yeah, that that's right. That they are completely inseparable from one another. If you if you try to do self sacrifice without loving yourself first, you'll end up full. Yep. Justin's preaching my sermon. Justin don't even need Love to come to church for the day. first. Yep. Then you give what is you know have available to give, not give too much, and be happy. And uh, and like uh, God loves a cheerful giver. Well, if if you're if if it's not grounded in love for yourself, you can't really be cheerful about it. You're going to be a right. martyr complex. That's right. You're doing it out of religious obligation, right? And religious obligation is a different motive than love for neighbor or love for self. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, Justin, you apparently don't need to come to church for a couple of weeks because you're just preaching my sermons. So, um, okay, uh, folks, um, I'm going to go ahead and, and close this out because uh, I've got I've got kids who uh, I want to spend some time with. So I think you hey, guys are not in your life. You're not in your library. Tom. Nope, nope, nope. That's my false self right there. My false self that reads hundreds of books a year. Yeah. <laughs> I wish that was my true self. <laughs> All right. Bye, guys. Bye, little guy. Good night. Good night.